welcome back to the Enviro Health Podcast. I'm Emily, one of the co-hosts along with Carl and Joseph. Today, I got to sit down with Dr. Camilla Audia and get her unique insight into co-production in large research projects. Camilla has organized multiple international workshops bringing together researchers and societal partners to share in knowledge transfer. She also has a unique perspective having worked in climate resilience in rural West Africa. We also touched upon her more recent interest in embodied practices, which she grew closer to teaching online during the pandemic. So thank you so much for joining us, Camilla. And we're really excited to dive into some of the work that you've been doing. Would you be kind enough to give us a little introduction of how you sort of came to your current um, working space? Yeah, hi, Emily. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I'm a social scientist by training. I'm a researcher at King's College London. And as a background, I started with my PhD in development studies, which focused a lot on West Africa. I then went to work on more um, climate change resilience across East and West Africa. And that's what actually led me to my work on local knowledge and local ways of handling climate change and handling you know, the changes in the way in rainfall patterns and in the way climate was affecting agriculture. And it was during this time I was doing very ethnographic research in the northern part of Burkina Faso that I started exploring the idea of living more embedded in nature and more present, being more present with the senses, your own senses, more attentive to the body and the surroundings, because that basically was shaping the whole culture of the people that I was interviewing uh, and affecting their livelihoods. And that has impacted a lot of the work that I did since, uh, meaning that I started looking at more ways of making every research um, project that I approach anchored in local knowledge. And that includes the work that I'm currently doing on health equity on pathways. I've watched your video, actually, that you have of um, sort of embodied understanding of um, weather in Burkina Faso. So we'll definitely send a link to that and hopefully kind of come back to that later. Um, but I'd love to dive into your role in Pathways. And for those of you listening, Pathways to Equitable Healthy Cities is a global partnership working in six cities, five or six cities, Accra, Beijing, Vancouver and London, uh, with its focus on health and health equity and environmental sustainability. And you were tasked with the ambitious task of co-production in Accra. So can you sort of give us a brief introduction of what is co-production in that particular context? Yeah, I think the Pathways is such a complex and integrated in- intricated project. Uh, it's very focused on methodological and theoretical findings that will lead to more health, um, equitable access to health in the cities that you've mentioned, including Accra. Now, the question is to me, how do these novel approaches, how this new how does this new data or how the, the new algorithms and models and so on, how do they link to the current policy landscape? And how can we ensure that they're not only useful, but they're also usable uh, by the decision makers and most importantly, that they end up getting used by them? And I think my role is really entails, you know, answering these questions and pushing all the scientists and the researchers to connect to the local decision makers and embed their research and their science within a specific local context. Uh, You mentioned Accra, we're also doing work in Dhaka, Beijing, um, and so on. And in the case of this project, we're trying to impact on policy. So it's really at this policy level. So we're engaging with people who can make a difference in terms of policy, making new policy in the landscape uh, at a political, governmental, you know, decision-making level. So we're not really engaging at 
citizens level, which is slightly different from the Burkina project for me, but it's still the same idea of linking science to policy. That's actually a very good distinction. And within this co-production framework, you've you have highlighted in some of the work that you've written about co-design, co-analysis and co-creation, which from my understanding, co-design is initial mapping out, bringing together and creating relationships. Co-analysis is really the bulk of work and co-creation is creating those final policies that you want to have in place. Um, so just for the for the first element, co-design, how does one go about this? Pathways is really massive, so there's a lot of relationships which may have been formed professionally or institutionally along the way, but I'd be curious to know, like, how did you actually go about meeting people, creating these relationships, and is there is there a template or a framework for having this mapped out for people who might want to work in similar areas in the future? Yeah, um, yes, to everything. I mean, that's a really good question. I think in Accra, the work that we've done, uh, what really made a difference in that were the pre-existing connections between the University of Ghana researchers and people in government. And what made the biggest difference in Ghana, also compared to the work that we've done in Dhaka in Bangladesh, is that we had a project meeting there. We had the whole team from across the world meeting in Accra, in person, pre-pandemic. And we were able to invite some people working in government branches around transport, housing, um, air pollution, who are some of the themes that Pathways is working on and ask them about their job and what they thought the issues to tackle were in the city. So in terms of pre-existing relationships, that definitely made uh, a world of difference. I also think that the fact that we were able to sort of reverse the usual dynamic of researchers asking questions in that very first, um, in that very first sort of little meeting made a difference as well, because we asked the researchers to just silently sit and um, listen without, you know, asking many questions and without overwhelming uh, the um, partners with their own knowledge, which is usually the way things go, including the way I carry my own research is, you know, you, you ask questions based on literature, based on what your models are telling you. Um, so this definitely made a difference in Accra. And this was the ground on which we built all further uh, interactions with the partners, including another face-to-face -face meeting that we were able to have before COVID, uh, which also made a difference. Whereas all the engagement work in Dhaka happened online. Um, and that's that's something that, you know, um, I'm sure you, you, you picked up. I mean, that's something that really distinguishes the way that we approached people in those cities, but that also links a lot to the embodied work um, that I've been doing at King's and that you mentioned at the beginning comes from the experience in Burkina Faso. In terms of the framework that you mentioned, I think yes and no. So we've published a paper on our loops and building blocks framework, and it includes strategies of doing this across the world, across different cities. Um, but the tools for making it happen need to be adapted to the different contexts. And I think this is where it becomes tricky to talk about an open source um, framework that people can contribute to. Um, for example, we tried replicating some of the work that we did in Accra in Dhaka, 
but the dynamics were different. For in Dhaka, we had to carry out workshops so that the very high-level executives would have their time to speak and reflect, and then all the more hands-on workshopy things had to be done with the junior-level executives. And this is the way that we could make a lot more impact. Whereas in Accra, we had people of all levels, uh, and nobody was refraining to speak up. Um, everyone spoke quite freely about what their thoughts were. And this tells me that sort of stratifying or doing something by region wouldn't really work. And I'd be interested if we ever get to do another face-to-face workshop in Accra to see how the elections that happened in the meantime changed all that. And if we get to talk to new people in government, uh, will the dynamics be different? Um, Beijing is just starting now on doing engagement and they're approaching like builders and planners in a completely different manner as well. And um, we have to go with what is relevant and appropriate by city. So I guess my roots as social scientists tell me it's basically what I write in every paper. Like a tool cannot be generalized and, you know, anything that leads to equity or adaptation to environmental uh, and health challenges needs to be locally led. Because Pathways is... Like you mentioned at the beginning of just what you were speaking about now, Pathways has had this benefit of sort of international relationships. So a lot of the universities are partnered and probably naturally they're part, quite strong partnerships of um, local and national government within the respective countries. So f- say, for example, for a smaller organized research project that also wants to work in a similar area, so contextually it's quite the same, is there any way of sharing that knowledge outside of a given project and I'm thinking here maybe something like mapping um, mapping structures of power mapping organization and mapping bodies so people actually just know who are the actors in that space and where power sits as well yeah I think that's that would be a great idea I mean um, a mapping of all the actors involved at any point in a specific issue is always helpful, is always useful. I think that should definitely be part of our outputs as pathways and that would help build uh, future projects. Um, When I worked in Burkina on climate change, we did a lot of mapping exercises of who was involved in creating and communicating weather forecasts um, across different levels of government institutions. And uh, we then sort of uh, created a, a cute little colored map and then um, gave, gave it back to our partners at the time. And the interesting thing was that nobody really agreed with that, even though they were the ones who designed it in the first place. But then they were like, oh, but this is missing and this is missing. So I think it's it's an ongoing, never-ending process of identifying links. Um, so in a way, it is more important to me or to, to the way that we approach co-production to put out there the tools to be able to identify new actors as they arise rather than um, go there with a pre-made map, which in a way already constrains a project's thinking to the older project. We could have molded that the way that we talked about transportation issues um, or the fact that we started by working on air pollution in Accra and that sort of biased the conversation with the actors. Okay, so societal partners, can you give us a couple of examples of who these people are um, and I guess specifically for 
pathways agenda who were the most important people for implementing policies in the cities yeah i guess again it really depends on uh, the issues that you focus on so for accra for pathways we were able to reach out to city planners driving authority civil society organizations looking at specific neighborhoods issues transport authorities and then uh, some of the ministries um, for example environment and health there were people, as I mentioned, that were working at all levels. And I found that really, really interesting, uh, the, the fact that, that we had, you know, junior, junior project managers as well as assistant directors in the same room. Um, and you could see, you know, there were power dynamics in place, which is absolutely normal for any meeting, uh, honestly. But nobody really refrained from talking uh, one thing that I found very interesting for the Pathways context is that we didn't have anybody uh, or we have very few partners that were directly involved in health in the face-to-face -face meetings. I think that was partially a consequence of focusing on equitable access to specific services that would lead to more equitable health. So health would be sort of once removed, one step removed. And if I were to do that again, I would probably focus on that as well because it makes everything a lot more practical. So the way that we are focusing on air pollution because we want to lead to urban equitable health or we're focusing on a better transport system or you know housing policies because it will lead to better health. Um, and I think that because it will lead to better health was sort of half missing at the beginning and we had so many issues to tackle that it stayed in the background. Okay, I have a question around the funding nature of research projects and co-production. To begin with, you know, the grant perhaps you've outlined the ambitions and co-production, I imagine, I'm assuming, I'm not sure if this is true, happens, you know, once the project is underway. So the sort of Deliverables have already been outlined. Is there potential for conflict there? Do you think, do you think, did you ever notice in any of the work that you did that once you actually got into the ground in this co-production environment, some of the outcomes weren't necessarily top of the list for what the grant already has in its deliverables? Was that something that you ran into? Um, and does that sort of lead you to think that co-production might be better earlier on? Or... What other takeaways would you have if that was the case? Yeah, I think the way that funding works is one of the main challenges for knowledge co-production um, in research. I remember sitting at the interview for this job in Pathways and asking, but why are you hiring one co-production person if the whole project should be based on it? Um, and, you know, the, the way that they replied, you know, it's important to have someone that reminds um, who can remind all partners that they need to talk to each other and it's fine and I think I am at the same time part of a problem and part of the solution in that sense um, because it's really important to have someone embedded within the project who actually does remind all partners to talk to each other not just researchers but also decision makers and policy people however ideally they do the double loops organically and without me almost interfering with the work so yeah I think the second thing is that co-production can become a buzzword very quickly and something that is put on papers in project proposals without actually allocating time and resources for it to be 
put together and carried out throughout the project. I don't think that's the case for Pathways, actually. I think we allocated quite a lot of time and resources to this. Uh, but I do think that it should have almost happened before the project proposal. But I think that's not due to the nature of the project. It's more due to the way that funding works. One of the things I really struggle uh, with constantly, and I have struggled with it across my projects, is to capture ongoing engagement. Because in a way, it's easy to capture engagement that happens formally uh, in workshops. But... I know that there are there are plenty of early career researchers and PhD students on pathways who are constantly talking to partners at different levels but how do how do I capture that how do I put that into our loops and building blocks for framework and I mean it's particularly it hit me now because I just got back from maternity leave and there haven't been any big workshops or that kind of interactions while I was away but people have organically been talking to each other so how do I know what happened do I need to know what happened and how can I categorize it within our framework yeah that's really interesting because I guess the fact that the communication is happening actually is, you know, your job is well done. But in terms of evaluation and outcomes, I mean, I still have um, I still have in my mind this ideal sort of online ledger of that maps everything. But probably that's like the technocrat in me that thinks that that's some kind of solution. You know, that'd be really interesting. I mean, um, Pathways, uh, as you know, is working in parallel with um, a UCL-led project Kush and uh, with their monitoring and evaluation person I am working on a paper looking at how we do engagement in the projects and we are trying to categorize and we are trying to have sort of a map saying this is how we're doing this in both projects which would be great I think um, but on a very practical level stays the fact that you know how do I I don't want to be the person sending emails saying tell me what you've done because that's not my role and nobody has the time to do that. Like I completely understand. So um, I think we need to reflect on co-production as being something organic, but also how do we make researchers accountable for their own actions? I don't, I don't have a solution yet. We're, we're trying different things. Uh, we've tried little polls um, and we've tried face-to-face -face and yeah, we can see what works. Do you think like the bottom-down approach of sort of encouraging researchers to engage in their work in this way versus top down, you know, it actually being a necessary part of um, grant writing and initial stages of planning out research projects. Do you see it working both ways? Yes, in a way, yes, I see it working both ways. In 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 another way, I would like to see change in the way funding funding works first, and I think that's sort of easier to achieve than institutional change around incentives for researchers to engage rather than publish um, because while that is a noble goal I don't see it happening anytime soon um, so we should still push for that but in the meantime often the calls that I see are very technical they're very grounded in what the donors or the researchers already want to study and in many cases it's rightly so but we continue to revert to a very UK or global north strength and capacities and co-production is about recognizing local ontologies indigenous ontologies indigenous ways of work and increase the south to north learning so I think to me in a way the answer to your question is how do we learn 
trying to incorporate that south to north learning in our own approaches? How do we develop our own capacity? Because for co-production to be successful, there needs to be a two-way conversation, so the one that you mentioned, but not a scenario where you just have researchers to get there with the cards already out. And the way that funding works at the moment is exactly that. So all the projects that I've worked, including the ones that I've written myself, were pre-written and then you already go there with your own goals that you can only shape up to a point. And in a way, Pathways has been one of the most shapeable ones that I've worked with because it was quite open. We were still able to sort of ask, you know, what the interest and what the priorities were. And it was fed back into in the way that the project evolved. But we it was already a Pathways project when we got there. Uh, there's this one article that I really like. They're also sort of posing if you're a foreign researcher kind of working in a local area, how do you pose the work that you're doing? And speaks about also typically we're looking at inter- international journals with a very specific type of language. And actually the audience often might be a foreign audience, even though the problem is a local problem. They sort of bring up local pieces of knowledge, like local conversations, local blog posts, local radio. How can that become accessible like you were saying south to north how can those sources of information become valuable in sort of this international research space Uh, it's an interesting one Uh, when I was doing my ethnographic work in Burkina Faso we had a lot of issues because we we spent a lot of time there collecting people's experiences of climate change and changes in rainfall patterns and agricultural ways of working and all that. And every time we tried to publish or even discuss these things with Met offices or climate scientists in more generally, they always asked, okay, but were these ways, like, were the way that they had to predict the weather true? Like, did it really happen? And can you put that together in, in a toolkit? And we were like, okay, this is completely missing the point this is not what we want to do we don't want to formalize their own knowledge and give it back to them or put it back in a journal Um, but this is the way that we are wired to think about things and this is the way that a mainstream global north approach like some western framework is being applied to everyone and including in my own work I'm not I'm I'm definitely part of a problem here like we're trying to make it fit in a framework of co-production we are very aware of our biases but there is no way that we can get rid of them um, that quickly or or easily Um, but the fact that we're aware of them at least tries to avoid the sort of paradoxes that you were talking about sort of what we take local knowledge and we write it up for a foreign audience which may be interesting up to a point but then what do we offer as a solution and this is why engagement to me is still important even in this flawed sort of world of funding and research definitely I'd be curious to hear with your embodied practice um, at King's and how you've been engaging with different people within the university students lecturers all the different I guess that say societal partners that have been involved in um, work you're doing on that front Yeah, um, that's really, I think, in a way, it's very connected to co-production work. And at the same time, it's still a bit too separate, in my opinion. I started exploring all of that because of students. Before and during the pandemic, I was teaching master students at King's Geography Department as an hourly paid lecturer and looking at the way that they got really a a bad deal of cards. um, And it was nobody's fault, but they got stuck in front of a screen 
for more than a year and that's all they were going to get in terms of experiencing education and knowledge for that year. Uh, I started talking to many people, including um, somatic practitioners, so a psychotherapist who works with all the practices linked to the body. And we put together a series of short webinars and short interactive online workshops about how to be more embodied while teaching and learning um, remotely, which was really interesting. And it was really a journey for me as well, uh, because there was a lot that I learned around what it means to be with your own body um, and the links between mental, physical and um, um, psychological health. And all these practices have now being f- are now being formalized in a creative toolkit, which is amazing, that is now accessible to King's staff and students. It has been finalized while I was away and I haven't yet seen uh, all of it, but it's a series of short videos teaching people what embodied uh, practices are, uh, including a lot of icebreakers, you know, and uh, a lot of little things to wake up your body as a teacher and as a learner as well. Um, Starting from noticing your body posture, from reconnecting with nature Um, I used to do with students just ask them to look out the window and tell me something that they would see out of their own window to reconnect them with the environment and not just look at the screen for the whole time Uh, this has a lot to do with also with being more mindful because it's linked to listening more openly to the information that you get and in a non-judgmental way which is a principle of of mindfulness Um, so this is how it all all started Um, the practice that I enjoyed more, I guess, um, are all about movement and the way that we can use movement during lecture or during a seminar to be more engaged with each other. And there are many activities. And I have to say the students have been very, very receptive and most of my colleagues as well. And the other practice that I used a lot with students was it's called Three Levels of Awareness. Um, and it's asking yourself where you're at physically first, emotionally, and then mentally. So you sort of look look at your brain, look at how you're standing in front of your screen, look at what worries you, all the different conditions, are you cold, are you hot, and all that. And just giving five minutes to students to do that as they jump from one Teams meeting to another um, on a year of remote learning, I think they said it it really helped. We got really good feedback on that. Reminds me of, I have a friend who works as a drama therapist and that's really centred around movement and using your body to sort of express and um, draw up. And another resource, should I say, which is called Five Rhythms, which I don't know if you've heard of. It's this ecstatic dance culture that they have across the world, but they have it in London as well. And essentially you go for about two hours and they play a series of five different rhythms. So each of the rhythms changes. So sometimes it will be really disordered, really busy, then sort of, you know, undulating. And you just dance at the same time, which is it's, um, it's really fun. It's like completely in sobriety as well. So I think it gives people the opportunity to, to get in touch with their body, like really with a lot of awareness. Yes, no, we, we, we all love dancing and we, we trialed out some of the creative toolkit ideas with some of the staff at King's before putting them out and uh, 
we made them dance and we made them move and uh, we had all these um gestures across the screen where we were sort of reaching out to each other and you know it was definitely uncomfortable for everyone including myself definitely but it was also it made such a difference in the informal conversations that we had afterwards sort of uh, we broke a wall um, and after that wall then we were a lot more open with each other. I love I can 100% imagine this practice with my colleagues but I just love the idea of um, like various different people in academia sitting around at the table having a meeting and dancing around I really hope that at one point happens I think maybe we can leave it there that was really really wonderful and uh, I'm, re I'm really excited because we had a previous interview with um, Diana Verdon and she also gave us this participatory methods and research and engaging with her research focuses on children and schools And now being able to talk to you about the research that you're doing, co-production and really engagement, it just feels natural that people hopefully will also sense, okay, there's something really, really powerful and important, um, which I believe is a bit more of a culture just generally, especially in the climate action world, um, you know, learning from local knowledge. So thank you so much for sharing all your insights with us. Thank you. And for taking your time as well to join us. No, thanks very much. And it was lovely to see you again on screen. Bye. It was great to see you again. Thank you.